Over these next several weeks, this is an incredibly important time in the history of Northwest, in our short history. And uh, we are so praying as an elder team, we've been praying, we've been praying as a staff. We want this to be so much more than building a building. Some of you know, in my past, I've been part of buildings. I've been part of building really big campuses, and it's great and it's exciting. But let me tell you, it always leaves you empty if it's just about building a building. For us, it's not about just building a building. It is about influencing this community with the life-changing message of the gospel. We're very serious about that. You'll see it as we unveil our plans to you on the 23rd. I don't think there'll be any doubt in your minds just how serious we are about having a campus, having a facility that's not just occupied by a holy huddle on Sunday morning, but a campus that is a blessing to this community. Matt and I had an opportunity to meet with Jennifer Robinson, who represents us on the town council. We met her for breakfast on Friday morning. She's a follower of Jesus, and it's really exciting to meet with her because she shares our vision and our, and our priority. And we were explaining to her just about our facility and about what we want to be and what we want to be in this community. And we want her to understand that and, and to somehow communicate that to the rest of our town council as well. So you be praying for us as a staff, pray for us as an elder team, as we uh, make decisions, that those decisions will be made with, with pure motive and with right uh, uh, strategy and philosophy based on the vision that we believe God's given to us. And as Matt said, really make it a priority to be here. I'm going to talk about that a little bit this morning, but uh, it seems like some of us get in the habit of two out of four and I'm good kind of a thing. I'd challenge you not just over these next several weeks, but to get in the habit of making it a regular part of your week to come and be with brothers and sisters and enjoy the teaching of God's word and the fellowship of this uh, community of faith. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're coming down the home stretch, all right? We got uh, this week and next week, and we will have made it fully through the book of Galatians, which is a pretty incredible thing if you've been going through it verse by verse, and in some cases, as you'll see this morning, just a word at a time. Simeon the Stylite was the first of what was known as the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers were Christian hermits and monks who lived mainly in the deserts of Egypt beginning around the 3rd century AD. And around 423 AD, he constructed a short pillar on the edge of the desert, just a little pillar about six feet high. And he climbed on top of that pillar and he lived on it for the next six years. True story. He had many visitors during that time that would come and visit him. I say probably stare at him. Probably some of them came just because they wanted to see what it would be like to see a guy living on a pillar that was six foot high because they probably thought he was out of his mind for living on top of a pillar. The hermit explained this. Simeon said this. He said, I'm simply a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian and I want to commune with God in solitude, free from worldly distractions. And living on top of a pillar was his way of trying to do just that. Let me tell you this morning that that is not the mandate for a follower of Jesus. When we come to an understanding that we are sinners, and because of our sin, we have accumulated a debt that we can't possibly pay on our own, and we place our trust in the payment that Jesus made on the cross for our sin, everything changes. Do you understand that? 
I hope after weeks and weeks and weeks in the book of Galatians that you understand that. The gospel changes everything. And as we've seen in the book of Galatians, it doesn't just change everything because we're good people, because basically we're not good people. It's because of grace, because of the mercy that has been given to us. And so when we become a follower of Jesus, our perspective changes. And this life is not about us. It's not about going into the desert and living on top of a six-foot-high pillar. It's about sharing the radical, life-changing message of the gospel with those that are around us. That is the mandate for one who submits to the lordship of Christ, who becomes a follower of Jesus. I read this week a story about the popular comic strip Peanuts, In one of the comic strips, Lucy asked Charlie Brown, why are we here on earth? And Charlie Brown replies, to make others happy. And Lucy ponders this for a moment, and then she asks, then why are the others here? Right? Maybe that's why some of us are thinking this morning, if if, if I'm here just to make others happy, then why is everybody else here? We are here as followers of Jesus. We've been left on this planet, not simply so that we might come into a building and, and, and sing worship songs, as great as that is. We have been left on this planet so that moments from now, we will exit this building and go into this community, and we will be an influence for the cause of Jesus Christ. If the gospel has radically transformed and changed your life, you get that mandate. You understand that mandate. It's not about you living on a six-foot pillar in the middle of the desert. And I want to echo what Matt said earlier about uh, Charlie Murphy's class about sharing Jesus. If you have bought into this idea of the gospel according to Jesus and according to his word that we are saved by grace through faith, by Christ alone, then you can't help but want to share that message. And I will tell you this, if you can go to that class that Charlie Murphy will teach, hear his story, hear about his desire to share his own faith, and you then walk out of that class and have no desire to share Jesus, something's wrong with you, all right? Like you got a problem. Go to the doctor, say, what's wrong with me? Something is not right with me. And I want to challenge you that if you, as Matt said, if you know the gospel and you've trusted in Christ alone, but yet you're not sharing your faith, what a great opportunity this will give you over the next several weeks. Make sure you sign up for it. Come to the service just like you're doing next week, right here, right now at 9 o'clock. And then at the 1045 hour, be part of that class. You will enjoy it. All right, Charlie's a great teacher and he lives what he's going to teach. Here's the problem as we get into Galatians chapter 5, the end of the chapter and into chapter 6. You know that churches are messy places? You know that? Yeah, amen. I get one amen, all right? I I echo the amen. Churches are messy places because they're made up of messy people who have messy lives, right? We are the mess, and yet at the same time, sometimes we are the mess makers. Sometimes we are called to clean up the mess, And that's why Paul addresses here in the first few verses of Galatians chapter 6, he gives us a blueprint for how messy people live with other messy people, right? Not just how messy people live with the rest of us who have everything figured out. He's telling us how messy people kind of do life together. If you've been around Northwest any length of time, you know that we're very transparent about the fact that we all get that we are messed up people. 
If you don't think you're a messed up person, you really are. But if you don't think you're a messed up person and you think you got everything together, I would tell you this probably is not the place for you because before too long, you're going to get messed up too, right? Because we are messy, messy people. And Paul's going to give us just a short blueprint for how we handle messy situations because we're messy people. Now, I want to give you just a short review from our study last week. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Here's what you need to understand. Our spiritual life flows from the third person of the Trinity. Who is that? That's the Holy Spirit. And this life can be nurtured by reading scripture and by attending public worship services, but spiritual life itself comes from God. Only the Spirit of God can produce the fruit that we read about last week in Galatians chapter 5, love, which produces joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And this fruit, by the way, is not produced for our personal enjoyment. It's not. You may have a fruit tree and a yard that you've lived in someplace, someplace, maybe down in Florida, and you thought that tree, maybe that tree produced fruit for your personal enjoyment. Our spiritual fruit is not produced for our personal enjoyment. True spirituality is not a quest for fulfillment. It's not a climbing to the top of a pillar and living in isolation. The life of the Spirit of God flourishes for the benefit of others. And it is not experienced primarily in private, but in public. It doesn't grow in isolation, but it's grown as we live in community with other people. And that's really what a local church is. It would be more like this. It would be more like a fruit tree in a park, as opposed to this incredible fruit tree that's growing in some remote place that nobody knows about it. But man, it's got really great oranges on it. There's really great lemons on it. There's a, there's a banana plant and there's really great bananas on that plant, but it's growing in isolation. Nobody knows about it. That's not what we're to be like. It's more like we're growing in a park. Everybody knows it's there. And if we're going to live our lives with a focus on Jesus and on placing others ahead of ourselves, then we have to be aware of those things which inhibit that kind of influence. Look at verse 26. Paul writes, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Here's what I've begun to realize in my own life, that proud people are too exalted in their hearts to bend low to serve and love other people with more than just words, right? Do you know people that love people with just words? We're really good at that, right, as Americans, speaking the English language fluently. We can, you know, hey, I'll be praying for you. Don't just pray for me, right? I mean, I can't pay my rent next week. How about writing a check, right? You ever felt that way? Somebody saying, well, you know, hey, I, I'm having a hard time with this. And you know specifically that you could help them in some tangible way, but instead you pray for them. Proud people are too exalted in their own hearts to bend low to serve and love others with more than words. The kind of ministry in others' lives that Paul is about to explain is menial and it's messy and it's oftentimes thankless. In fact, I'd go a step further than that. Oftentimes, if you get into the kind of ministry that we're going to talk about here in this chapter, not only will it be thankless, you could be talked about, you could be criticized, you could be ostracized by some people. It's not a task for the proud. An inflated ego will cause you not only not to love and serve others, but to envy and provoke them, Paul says, as well. 
So if you're thinking about, I wrote down in my notes this week, if you're thinking about launching into the deep end of Galatians chapter 6, here's what I would challenge you to do as Paul does here in verse 26. It's really important that you check yourself for pride and you recognize your own messiness. Okay, right now. I've had a great opportunity over the last 20 hours during the week this last week to do that. It's amazing when, when, when you're going to preach a text and you go, oh, I am so hosed when I get up to talk about that particular passage because I know what God knows about me. And even if I trick them, God knows me. He knows me. So even though they may go, what a humble man. You know, oh, he just such, wants to be such a, God knows. No, he, you know you don't. You don't really want to do that sometimes. Sometimes you whine and complain. Your wife knows. Your kids know from time to time, all right? I've already done business. I've done my business. So now I'm going to preach it, all right? I'm going to preach it now. So if you want to launch into the deep end of, of Galatians chapter 6, you got to kind of do some, some self-checking, all right, with your own pride and recognize your own messiness. Paul starts out in verse 1, and he says, brothers, all right? Let's stop right there for just a second. Now, we're going to get through verse 5. We're going to get there by, by 1015, Lord, Lord willing. But I want to stop here for just a moment because that word brothers, and by implication brothers and sisters, since he was writing to the entire church in Galatia, the church is literally a big extended family where we have brothers and sisters who love us and they encourage us and they support us and they instruct us and they, Hebrews says they, they spur us on to love and good works. And I am convinced, some of you may or may not agree with me, but I am convinced that for many of us, that being part of a local church is like adding leather seats to your SUV. You say, how's it like that? It's like this. It's like you go in and you buy the SUV and it comes with cloth seats, right? But then the sales guy says, hey, but your buns could be warmed every cold morning. If you upgrade to the leather package as an option, it'll be awesome. That doesn't change the SUV at all. It just makes it a little bit nicer. We can drive the car. We can go on vacation as a family. Everything's great. But to have the leather seats would be a nice thing, but not entirely necessary. I think that's how a number of us, unfortunately, view the church. Can I take just a moment to say that that is a really bad idea? Not only is it an incredibly bad idea, flawed idea, furthermore, it is incredibly poor theology, if that's your view of the church. Ephesians 5, in fact, lets us know very specifically in terms of how God feels about the church. He describes the church as what? His bride. Paul describes Christ's love for the church as the pattern for how husbands ought to love their wives. Now, now don't get concerned, husbands. I'm not, not, not going down that, that, that lane to, today, all right? We're going to do that, by the way, next fall. We're going to do a family series, so I'm going to beat up on you then, but not right now. But Paul says, as Christ loves the church, that's how husbands ought to love their wives. And so I want to read these verses out of the message from Ephesians chapter 5. Paul wrote this, Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that's how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. Verse 21, no one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds and he pampers it, 
That's how Christ treats us as the church, since we are a part of his body. Now, let me ask you a question. If God loves the church this way, how should we love the church? How should we feel about it? Since earlier in verse 1, he says that we're to be imitators of Jesus. Can you imagine saying to Jesus, I love you, but I dislike your wife? Guys, what would you think about that? Don't answer that. Some of you probably shouldn't answer that question. But if somebody said, hey, I really like you and I enjoy you, can't stand your wife, I'd be offensive to you, right? I think that's what a lot of human beings do. It's what a lot of people who name the name Christian do. I love Jesus. I love the fact that God sent Jesus for my sin, but I don't have anything, I don't want anything to do with his church. That's like saying to God, I love you, but I don't like your bride. I accept you, but I reject your body. Exactly what we do when we dismiss the church or complain about the church. We should love the church as much as Jesus loves the church. We're to love our spiritual family. And sadly, many of us like the church, but we really don't love it. I want to unequivocally say to you this morning that I love the idea of the local church. All right? I do. And I don't love just Northwest. I love you. I love you as my brothers and sisters, but I love the church. I love the fact that I can go all over this planet and I have traveled to a lot of different countries and I can meet brothers and sisters in Christ and they are part of the church and immediately I feel a connection with them. I love that idea. I love the idea that there are men that are surrounding me right now that I know I look down at some of their faces and I go, man, if I needed somebody, those are my brothers, right? I mean, come on, some of you love it as much as I do. You ought to say amen. That's, that's, that's the way that I feel about the church. I love the fact that I have sisters in this building. I got two in Omaha, Nebraska, but I got tons that'll be in this auditorium this morning. I love that. And that's what God says the church is. It is God's plan for the development of us as followers of Jesus, but it is his only plan for us to reach our world. Some people say, well, that's plan A. Well, it's not just plan A. It is the plan. There is no B, C, D, E, F, G. There's nothing, all right? It's just the church. Why do we need a church family? There are many reasons why I think we need a church family, and that's not the purpose of even why I'm supposed to be preaching today in this particular text. But when I saw that word brothers, I thought, hey, let me explain to you what a brother is and how you develop that kind of kinship. A church identifies you as a genuine believer. It moves you out of your self-centered isolation. It gets you down off the six-foot pillar. A church helps you develop spiritual muscle. You say, I can do that on the internet. Good luck with that. You will share in Christ's mission in the world. And here's the context for us this morning. A church family, brothers and sisters in Christ, will help you from backsliding. When you become a follower of Jesus, you automatically become part of what we call the universal church, the body of Christ. But you also need to be part of a local community, a fellowship of believers. And Galatians chapter 6, if it does nothing else, it makes it clear why that's a good idea. Why it's good for us not to live in isolation or outside of a circle of brothers and sisters. Because we're messy people who make messes sometimes and we oftentimes need help getting things cleaned up. Great. Thank you for all those amens to that particular tangent exit that we took for just a few moments. 1B says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Now, I got to run really quickly because I got 15 minutes and six pages of notes, all right? That would be like uh, two minutes, 15 seconds per page, all right? So I'm going to go really quickly. Now, to be caught means, implies that the person was actually seen committing a trespass, committing a sin, indicating that there was no doubt about their guilt. This would be similar, by the way, to the woman that Jesus met in John chapter 8 who was caught in the act of adultery. By the way, some of you that use this text because you're confronters and you just love the whole idea of confrontation, all right, you're a sick person if you just love the idea of confrontation. All right, as a pastor, I have to do that enough. I've gotten to a point where I don't love it. I don't enjoy it. I embrace it when it comes, but I don't go out looking for it. So for those of you that would think that this is just simply a, a, a mandate for you to be the moral police at Northwest Community Church or in your neighborhood for the cause of Christ, let me warn you that that's not what this text is talking about. It doesn't mean that we go out and we look and confront anybody that's sinning in any way according to our standard. It does mean that we can't overlook someone who's caught up or overtaken in a sin that has become habitual and has trapped them. And, and, and they simply can't get out there on their own. And we know that if they don't get out, eventually it's going to have incredibly devastating consequences. This would be the guy that's part of our fellowship that I find out is uh, sleeping around on his wife. Right? This is a pattern that's been going on and he's, and he's not repentant. There's a confrontation that needs to take place. And so there's a balance here that we cannot be quick to confront but neither must we be afraid to confront. Who should do this? Paul says, you who are spiritual. One Bible teacher noted that where maturity is relative, depending on one's progression and growth, spirituality is an absolute reality that is unrelated to growth. At any point in a Christian's life, from the moment of his salvation to glorification, he's either spiritual, he's walking in the spirit, or he's fleshly and he's walking in the deeds of the flesh. And so maturity is the cumulative effect of times of spirituality. But any believer at any, at any point in their growth towards Christ-likeness could be characterized as a spiritual person. And that's really important because some of you go, well, that's why I don't confront. I mean, hey, look at me. <laughs> I mean, I'm just a new follower of Jesus. And I'm, after all, Brian says it all the time, I'm messed up too. So you kind of go, now there's some spiritual guys. I know that guy over there, like if there was a six-foot pole in the desert, he'd live on it, all right? And that person, that's the one that Paul is talking about here. He's the one that is spiritual, and he's supposed to do the confrontation, not so quick. There are some of you that are new followers of Jesus. You haven't known the Lord but just a few months, or in some cases a few years. Paul's talking to you here as well. And the admonition is to restore. Literally, this means to mend or to repair. It's a term for healing that means to bring something back to its former condition. The word was sometimes used metaphorically of harmony among quarreling factions in a dispute, but most often it was used of setting a broken bone or putting a, a dislocated limb back in place. Some of you have been in churches long enough that you know that we're not really good at this as Christians, are we? Maybe you've been in the place where you see a brother or sister who's caught up in something and you know it's damaging them, but, but you lack the courage to confront the issue. And so maybe you're one of the types that you just pretend it isn't there. Sometimes, uh, by the way, we like to act like uh, medical students who see a bone fragment uh, that's uh, sticking out of the skin, but we're too afraid to touch it, right? 
even though the student knows from the textbooks that if the bone is not set, it will never heal, they're just kind of grossed out by it, right? That's the point at which you quit medical school, by the way, when you know you just can't do that. Christians sometimes, though, do just the same thing, right? We notice that there's a problem, but we never get past making the diagnosis. How many of you are good at making a diagnosis? You don't have to raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass you, but many of our hands would go up, right? I'm really great about making diagnosis every single Sunday afternoon with my wife. Confession. You know, I saw this particular person and this, that, and you ever do this? Okay, don't shake your heads, don't raise your hands, but you do, right? Because you got the diagnosis thing down, right? You can tell somebody's got a problem. Now, doing anything about it, that's a different story. You might be like this. Wow, look at that broken bone. Just look at the way it's sticking out. I'm so glad that hasn't happened to me. Glad there's no bone sticking out of my arm. Meanwhile, the person continues in pain. We sometimes, by the way, call this diagnosis, we call it prayer. Don't we? We call it prayer. It's most often properly characterized as gossip. So we restore someone, and how do we do it? I think this is really important. We do it in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Jesus was the best example of that, by the way. Here Jesus is the Son of God, and he is, he's walking around down here on planet Earth. And wouldn't you have liked to have been here when he was walking around? And, and, and you remember uh, the story in John chapter 8 when the scribes and the Pharisees brought to Jesus the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and they reminded him about what Moses' law required, that she be stoned to death. You remember what Jesus did. Instead of picking up the stone and starting the process, Jesus bent down and he began writing in the sand, perhaps listing the sins of those in the crowd that were guilty. We can only speculate what that might have looked like. That's about the time the little Pharisees, you know, put their caps on and they start walking away, right? That's what Jesus had a habit of doing. He said, he is, if you're without sin, then let, you should be the one to cast the first stone at her. And when they heard it, they began to go out, the scripture says, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And then you remember what Jesus said. Jesus then asked her if any of her accusers had stayed to condemn her. She replied, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Now, some liberal scholars would say, see, he didn't really see it as a really big deal. Oh, he saw it as a big deal. She got the point. But Jesus did it in a spirit of gentleness. He wasn't interested in exposing the woman's sin to the world, but in helping her. And that should be our attitude toward other people. Some of you have been in churches where you know the, whole, the church's motivation was to simply expose a person. Some of you have been in churches where you've seen church discipline uh, done, and the motivation was solely just to make sure that that was exposed. There was no follow-up. And some of you, unfortunately, have never been in a situation where there has been confrontation and there has been biblical restoration. And let me tell you, friends, that's an incredibly beautiful thing. Whether it is in the context of the whole church, the body of Christ, or whether it is just in a relationship, restoration is an incredibly beautiful thing. And I think we should make it as a general rule that we do spiritual restoration as discreetly as possible. We don't use the church bulletin or Facebook to post a prayer request because someone has been overtaken in a trespass. Jesus taught in Matthew 18, in fact, very clearly in verse 15, that we should what? First of all, we should go and tell them their faults between them and us alone. And we keep that circle as tight as it can be. And I love that, as you saw in our study of, of, uh, of Peter's letter, where, where he said that love does what? Love covers over a multitude of sin. 
That doesn't mean that love just goes, ah, love you. <laughs> it's really okay. It's really okay if you're having an adulterous affair because I love you. I'm just going to cover over that. But what does love do? The, the idea in that context is that love does its very best to handle that as discreetly as possible so as not to do damage to that person nor to the cause of Christ. A pastor once commented, I've often thought that if I ever fall into a trespass, I'll pray that I don't fall into the hands of those censorous, critical judges in the church. Let me fall into the hands, he says, of barkeepers, streetwalkers, or dope peddlers, because such church people would tear me apart with their long, wagging, gossipy tongues, cutting me to shreds. You know what's unfortunate? That's an accurate description of most churches. May it never be part of our lives personally or of Northwest Community Church. But may we understand that we're messed up people who are trying to help other messed up people. Spiritual restoration, by the way, should be a regular part of any small group. If you're in a life group and this isn't taking place, by the way, uh, you need to do a check in your life group. If you're in a small group, if you're in a Bible study, and there's never any of the sharpening going on, never any of this, hey, warning going on, you're probably in the wrong group. You need to do some work. Proverbs 27.6, I love this verse. Some of you are familiar with it. It says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. Love that, right? Sometimes that loving confrontation is such an incredibly faithful thing for a friend to do. The verse goes on to say, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You watch out for those people that are always kissing up to you. They're the people you got to be aware of. Not the person that is sitting down lovingly, discreetly, gently, and prodding with you, talking with you about some area in your life where you're caught up in a trespass. All right? I have no idea what I'm going to do in the next five minutes because I'm not going to do justice to the rest of this text. So let me just go through really quickly. 1C, okay, we're still in verse 1. It says, keep watch over yourself lest you be tempted. Pretty self-explanatory. We can move on. Watch out. Sometimes we, we have a habit of sitting down with people and we're going, well, I'd never do that. You ever sat down, men, with a guy who is committing adultery in an adulterous affair? And you're kind of sitting there and, and in your own mind you're going, well, I would never do that. Oh, watch out. Watch out. Keep watch over yourself so that you won't be tempted. Now, now, verse 2, and, and I'm not going to give you everything I got here, although it's really, really good. I mean, it's really good. It'd be worth staying for. I'm just telling you that, right? Verse 2, he goes into a different vein than he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Burden here, by the way, refers to something that's very heavy that you can't possibly lift or carry on your own. Uh, used metaphorically as here, it represents any difficulty or problem in your life that, you are, that you're trying to cope with, but you can't possibly do on your own. We're going to dive into this a little bit more deeply next week in our text. I wish we had about four messages, by the way, left in Galatians chapter 6, because that's really what I think I need, four to five. And we've only got one more. Have you noticed, though, that when you get involved in the lives of other people, that it gets messy really quick? Doesn't it? I mean, it does for me. It just gets, it, gets, it gets incredibly messy. I go in sometimes with the best of intentions, and before too long, I go, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? You find that time that you used to have for yourself, you don't have anymore. Money you used to be able to spend on things for you and for your family, it's gone. Hobbies that you used to have time for, you don't have time for any longer because you're helping to carry somebody else's burden. Newsflash, right? Wish I had some flashing lights about right now. That's what we do as followers of Jesus. 
We carry each other's burdens. If you need any reason, by the way, to be part of a local church that I haven't given you already, just go, well, when I get to the point where I got burdens that I can't possibly carry on my own, I got brothers and sisters that are surrounding me that come alongside of me and say, hey, let me help you carry that. Isn't that a great reason to be part of a local church and to be connected with brothers and sisters? Yeah, <laughs> it's a good thing. I mean, I feel a total sense of satisfaction that if I drop dead to you preaching right now, which would be a tragic thing, I think, for my wife and for my kids, right? That'd be tragic. It would be. I don't mean to make a joke about it. But let me tell you this. Don't worry about me because I'm going to be in heaven. I'm going to be with Jesus. And I got life insurance. And so they're actually better off <laughs> then than they are right now. All right. But you know what? I got two sons that I love and I got a daughter that maybe someday we'll walk down an aisle and she'll get married. And, and you know what? I don't worry about that because I got brothers and sisters in my life that will come alongside of my wife and they will carry that burden. Yeah, come on. That's an awesome thing. And I have seen it time and time and time again in a local church. <laughs> and I love it. I love that idea. Our family experienced it just uh, a month ago when my father-in-law went to be with Jesus. And people surrounded us immediately. Cards are coming in the mail. Food's coming and we're going, what are we going to do with it? There's no even place to put it. People are offering to do things and to help. That's how you bear one another's burdens. And when you do that, you fulfill the law of Christ, it says. What's that? Well, the law of Christ, we learned about it earlier in chapter 5. It is that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe more than you love yourselves. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. I got so much more to say about that. And uh, we're going to say it next week. All right. By the way, it's, it's easy for us to get into a habit. Some of us, uh, just the opposite end of the extreme where we're dialing 911 for everything, right? We think everything's a burden. Then we got people on the other end that we find out, you know, that they... They broke both their arms and both of their legs and they've been in traction for two months and they live alone, but they've somehow managed it because they didn't want to call anybody and they didn't want to tell anybody, right? That's not right either. Both extremes are wrong. We're a family. We have responsibilities to one another. When you have a burden you can't carry on your own, we help you. More next week about that. Verse 3. I'm going to jump through this really quick. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. It's easy for us to think that way, and yet I'm convinced we should pray as, the, uh, as King David prayed in Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to... We're going to have to get off of the idea that we're something when we're nothing. We've got, to, we've got to get off of that idea or we'll be deceived and we won't have this kind of influence. We won't have this kind of an impact. Verse 4, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be himself alone and not in his neighbor. Paul made it very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. We have a tendency to want to compare ourselves to other people, don't we? Do you always like it when you were in a class and you got graded on the curve? It's awesome, right? Especially if you got a bunch of idiots in your class like you, right? It's good. Because, you know, we all end up in a good place, right? But you hated the kid that did really well. 
You know, what the heck do you study for? You know, that's the problem. You messed everything up. You know, our comparison of who we are and the way we live our lives and our character is not based on anybody else in this room, right? It is based on us being, as Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says, being mimics of Jesus Christ, being imitators of God, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Verse 5, so that I don't leave you confused. Paul said, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, it's easy to read that and go, well, hey, you know, just back in verse 2, it says we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. Two different Greek words, all right? If you don't believe me, go, go and study it. Most of you won't, but, but just believe me, all right? In Galatians chapter 2, as I said, it's the meaning is a heavy burden, while in Galatians 6, it's, a, it's the idea of a soldier's backpack, right? It's a little duffel bag, right? We all have those duffel bags, right? We all have those things that we have to carry in our life. If my, if my car breaks down, my neighbor can help drive my children to their school, but he doesn't assume the responsibility as their dad, as their father, right? I mean, he, he helps me with my burden at the moment, but I got a load, and that's my responsibility, and it's wrong for me to expect somebody else to carry my load. More about that next week. John Stott said it this way, there's a burden that, that uh, we cannot share, and that's our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you can't carry my pack, and I can't carry yours, all right? There's a burden, and then there's a load. I began this morning by describing to you the peculiar life of Simeon the Stylite. Here's what you need to know by the end of that story. Eventually, uh, Simeon decided he wanted to be more, more spiritual than he was, after all, a six-foot pillar is good, but wouldn't it be great if he could build a higher tower? And so with the help of friends, he built a column that was 60 feet high in, in the air and three feet in diameter with a crossbar around it to keep him from falling off of it as he slept. And there he remained until his death 30 years later. Now, I can't help but wonder what influence he might have had on this world if he had come down from his pole and influ influenced his, his world by living out the gospel in the real world, by restoring others who had gotten caught up in sin, and by bearing the burdens of others. Here's the, here's the, the, the challenge to you and to me. While you and I don't live on columns in the sky, it's easy for us to live on islands, isn't it? And, and just simply look out after ourselves and our little circle. And as we enter into this next season at Northwest, I, I want us not to forget how important our relationships are with one another. That we don't live on poles. We don't live in isolation on an island. We live with one another. And I want to say to you as I close today that if you are connected with people here at Northwest, I want to say that's great. That's awesome. That's why when I talk about it, you go, ooh, I get warm fuzzies. Because I'm just like that. I know I got brothers and sisters around me, and man, I love these people, and I love doing life. Maybe you're here, and you're new to Northwest, and you're kind of checking this out, saying, man, do I think I could be part of this mission? Do I buy into the vision? Do I, you know, do I really, you know, could I, could I be here? But you're going, I'm not connected. I don't have friends. I want you to know that makes me sad, especially if you've been here months. And I want to say to you, we want to do our very best to help you get connected with people, to, to cause you not just to be a spectator or a person sitting in a chair on Sunday morning, but to get out on the field, to play in the game, to be all in. And if, and if you're sitting here this morning and you're going, man, that's what I want, but I'm not connected, 
then that, we, we want to help you get connected. Now, I'm going to pray here in just a moment. I'm coming down front. The band's going to play. You're going to be, uh, we're, going to, we're going to let you go. But if that's you, and you say, man, I just want to get more connected. How do I do it? I'm willing to take the steps. You just tell me what to do, all right? I'm good at giving instructions. Just ask our staff and ask my family, all right? I'm, I'm really good at that. Come down. Let me talk to you, all right? And we'll figure out a strategy for you to get connected so that you can enjoy all the benefits, all of the blessings, and the protection that Paul talks about here in Galatians chapter 6. Thanks for being here today, and go Seahawks. I'll go with the man of God over the old guy any day. Just telling you, all right? Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people that I get to live life with. What an exciting thing that is for me. You know my heart. You know I'm not just blowing smoke this morning. I believe that. I love these people. And God, I pray for those that are connected and are are part of Northwest. God, may they reach out to other people and brothers and sisters, new people who maybe aren't even brothers and sisters yet. They're They're not followers of Jesus yet. But God, may we be warm and welcoming and inviting. And God, I pray for those folks that I know are in this auditorium right now and a few hundred of them that will be in the next uh, service. God, they're, they're here. They've kind of been checking us out. They've been coming in some cases for weeks, a few months, but they've not gotten connected. God, let them identify themselves so that we can help them. Uh, we want to fulfill Galatians chapter 6, and we want to do so in a great way, in a big way, so that we can be the church uh, that you uh, want us to be, and we can lovingly confront with gentleness when necessary. We can bear one another's burdens and by doing that, fulfill the mandate which you left for us when you walked on this planet. So God, thanks for the time around your word today. May we now not just have been hearers of the word, but may we exit this auditorium committed to being doers and living out the gospel in this community. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks.